My friends, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon this morning. We are going to be together in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. As we continue our series for October, Reformation Month here at the Forks, we continue our Five Solas sermon series. And this is the third of five, and today we get to be in Romans. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. This is God's holy word for us, his people today. God's word says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is God's holy word for us this morning. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. May the unfolding of your word give us light, O God, that we may be instructed and reformed in your wisdom. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Empower the preaching of your word that it might accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. Help us to receive your word with faith and with eagerness to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So we continue, as I said, our sermon series through the five solas of the Reformation as we continue to celebrate Reformation Month here in October. And what we're celebrating is the recovery by the mercy of God of the essential biblical truths that are central to the gospel and to the church, to proper worship, and to the Christian life. These five truths summarized in these five solas, they summarize what it means to be Protestant. And here's what we've seen so far. We began two weeks ago with sola scriptura. Who or what is the highest and only infallible rule of faith for the church? It's Scripture alone, sola scriptura. And why is that? It's because Scripture alone is inspired by God. And that means Scripture alone is the Word of God for the church today. Nothing is more final. Nothing is more truthful. Nothing is more authoritative than Scripture. And last week, we moved on to the second sola, sola gratia, or grace alone. Is God's grace sufficient to save us, or do we have to contribute our own goodness, godliness, 
works, or merit. And we answered from Scripture, from Ephesians chapter 2, that grace alone, grace all by itself, is sufficient to save from beginning to end. And that means that God alone is able to accomplish our whole salvation without any help or contribution from us. Salvation is entirely sola gratia, by faith alone. These are essential, precious truths. We move on to the third today. This morning we come to the third of the five solas. Sola fide. Faith alone. Sola gratia, last week, is about the work of salvation as a whole. All of salvation is from the Lord, not from us. God alone accomplishes salvation. This week, sola fide is about how we obtain that salvation. Salvation is a work of grace alone, but how do we get it? How do we access it? How do we make it ours? How do we benefit from it? How does it come to us? More specifically, sola fide is about this, this question. How are sinners made right with a holy God? Martin Luther asked it this way as he was in that second decade of the 16th century in the 15 teens, 1512 or so, up to about 1517. He's struggling in his Roman Catholicism as a monk. Of course, Protestantism is, no one's ever heard of it. It doesn't exist yet. It's just Luther in his monastery struggling with this question, how can I, a wretched sinner, find a loving God? Where can I find a God of grace and mercy when I'm so sinful and unworthy? Where can I find this loving God, the grace of God. How can I, a sinner, be made right with a God of inflexible justice and holiness? How do we receive forgiveness of our sins? That's what we need to know. That's where salvation starts. It's all by grace, but how do I get it? How do I receive forgiveness of my sin? And on what basis? Could I ever possibly hope to be restored into a right relationship with God when I've sinned against Him at every turn? That's the question of justification. How can I have a right standing with God? How can I be just in the sight of a holy God when I'm so sinful? How are we justified from our sins before God? That's what we want to know. That's what the Reformers wanted to know. That's what Luther needed to know before he despaired of his eternal life. And the biblical answer, not just Luther's answer, not just Calvin's answer, although they are the ones who rediscovered it, taught it, preached it, wrote about it, defended it with their very lives. The answer the Reformers found in the Scriptures, the biblical answer to our question recovered in the Reformation is sola Fide. We are made right with God. We find the grace of God only, only and exclusively by faith. And we see that taught in passages like this, Romans chapter 4. So in our passage this morning, Paul lays out in unmistakable terms this doctrine of sola fide. 
that we are justified before God from our sin by faith alone. And as we'll see as we go through the passage, Paul explains this doctrine by using two examples from the Old Testament. Sometimes we think, okay, we know how we get saved in the New Testament, but how did they get saved in the Old Testament before Jesus? Well, Paul preaches a New Testament gospel on the basis of the Old Testament. It's the same gospel message. It's just, it looks a little different before Christ as it does after. One is looking forward to Christ, the other looks back. But Paul preaches his gospel from the Old Testament. And as we'll see, he uses two examples, Abraham and David. And he appeals to two passages of Scripture as the foundation of his teaching. Notice Paul doesn't just say, I'm an apostle, listen to what I say because I'm the church. (laughs) Or I'm an apostle. No, Paul says, here's my message and here's Bible to prove it. Paul practiced a form of sola scriptura. He didn't just think he could go around making up truth. You got to find truth from the Word of God. And that's what Paul did. Yes, Paul was receiving divine revelation, and we're not. (laughs) But he, even as an apostle, receiving revelation from Christ, still knows he has to show you where he gets it in Scripture. Amazing. So that's what he does. He points to two passages of Scripture to support his examples of Abraham and David. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look first at these two examples, Abraham and David, and then we will unpack from the text how the doctrine of justification works. And then finally, we will conclude with some lessons that we can learn from sola fide for our Christian life. So that's where we're going. So in our text, example number one is Abraham, verses 1 through 5. Let's look at it. It says... Paul says, he just got through in chapter 3 explaining the gospel, and then he's anticipating one of his Jewish hearers. Paul's Jewish. He understands the objections that the Jewish mind will come up with who's not yet convinced about who Jesus is and about this new Christian message. And so here the Jewish mind says, and Paul's anticipating this objection, is, wait a minute, We're justified by faith without our works. What about Abraham? What about our father Abraham? He's the greatest saint in Judaism. There's nobody higher or better than Abraham. Moses is close. You got Abraham and Moses, and they are at the top. Nobody's better, greater, more holy, more righteous, more full of obedience to God's word and law and commandments than Abraham and maybe Moses next. They're the pinnacle. And so they're going to point, Paul's anticipating, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? He knows that Abraham is the counterexample of a man who was righteous before God and that's why he was right with God, because of his obedience. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? And then Paul answers it immediately, verse 2. He says, if Abraham was justified by his works, his obedience, his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness, his godliness, if Abraham was justified by works, you're right, guys, he would have something to boast about. He could say, I am right with God because of me. Because I made myself right with God. All you got to do is obey, guys. Come on. 
How hard can it be? And he's saying if that were true, Abraham would have some foundation upon which he could boast before God. Yes, I need God's grace, but also look what I can contribute. And then he says, if that were true, if Abraham was justified by works, yep, he would have something to boast about. End of verse 2, but not before God. He says, that's not true before God. Oh yeah, Abraham can boast compared to the rest of us, but not before God he can't. And then he explains from Scripture why Abraham has no basis for bragging and boasting about his own justification before God that he accomplished for himself. He points to Genesis fifteen six in verse 3. What does the Scripture say? Abraham worked for God and that was counted for righteousness? No. It says Abraham believed God, trusted God, had faith. And it, that, the believing, his faith was counted to him, credited to him, or imputed to him as righteousness. When the Bible says how Abraham is right with God... His works don't come up. His obedience isn't referred to. It simply says Abraham trusted God, believed God, had faith. And on that basis, he was counted as righteous, considered righteous. And then Paul appeals to this principle in verse 4. A very obvious principle in verse 4. He says, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now, all of you understand this, because if you, you know, worked your job, and then two weeks rolls around, it's payday, and your boss comes by, back when they used to hand out, you know, paper checks, and say, got a gift for you, got a present, here you go, out of my generosity, I decided to pay you this week. You would say, no, 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 (laughs) no, no, check the timesheet, I punched the clock. I did the work. You owe me this money. I worked for it. It's mine. In fact, it's unjust of you to keep it. It's wrong of you not to give it to me. I am justified by my work. I have earned what I get. To the one who does the job, the paycheck is owed. It's not a gift. It's not a present. It's not like Christmas morning when you get paid. You're owed that money. And that's what Paul appeals to here. And we all get that. You do the work, you get the pay. And then he says, verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So he's talking about the ledger and how the money gets into your account. So, in the works-based way, you do the work, and the money is owed to you, and it gets put into your account, direct deposited, because it's illegal not to give it to you, since you worked for it, you earned it. But here he's saying, to the one who is unemployed, (laughs) to the one who was off those two weeks, to the one who has no work, didn't punch in at all, but simply trusts In the one who freely justifies, his faith is what is credited 
for righteousness. In other words, when the employer looks at the timesheet and he says, okay, you worked your 40 hours, here is the amount of money you're owed, that's the works-based way. The grace way is to say, here's the timesheet, it's blank, but I'm not looking at your works, I'm looking at faith. And if I see no works but just faith, that's all I need to credit you the full amount. It's a gift. That's not how employment works in the world. And that's why justification is not that way. It doesn't work the way the world works. It is only a gift. It is righteousness gets credited, imputed to your account simply by your believing, not by your working. And because that's how Abraham got justified, he can't brag at all. He can't boast at all because he didn't earn his justification. He didn't earn a right standing with God. He didn't earn forgiveness of sins. He just simply received it by trusting a promise from God. That's how Abraham got justified. That's how Abraham got saved. That's Paul's first example. Then he moves on quickly into a second example, which he gives in the person of David. Now, Abraham's the greatest saint up there with Moses. Abraham's the greatest saint of Judaism, justified by faith, not works, even though he had a truckload of works. None of those saved him. None of those justified him. Now we come to David. David is, yes, a great saint. He's known for writing psalms and being a great king. But what's he also notorious for? A great sin. With Bathsheba, Bathsheba's husband, that whole just mess that he made. And we got two psalms out of it because of that. We got Psalm 51, his prayer of repentance. And we also got Psalm 32, which was our scripture reading earlier where David describes that long period of time where he tried to cover up that sin and he tried his best to hide it and he tried his best to cover it himself and he said it was like just his bones wasting away inside of him, spiritually just sick and wasting away until his conscience just gnawing on him until finally... The prophet Nathan comes and puts that long prophetic finger in his face and says, you have sinned and you need to repent. And David is broken and he writes Psalm 51 about how he repented. And then he reflects back on that experience in Psalm 32. And he opens that psalm, which Paul quotes here in 7 and 8. And he says, blessed, oh, how blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Abraham had a lot of lawful deeds. David had a lot of lawless deeds. He had a lot of sin. He was a notorious disgrace because of his sin. The big blemish on his life. And he writes Psalm 32 after being forgiven. And he says, how blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count, credit, impute his sin. Oh, what a glorious feeling, a release of conscience David experienced. And Paul points to David's example, and he says it like this in verse 6. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness 
apart from works. Oh, what good news that is, because, yeah, Abraham had a lot of good works, but he had some sins too. Read the whole Abraham story in Genesis. David had a lot of good works too, but man, he had a lot of sins. So it's good news that God's not looking at our works. Because look how sinful they are. Look how unworthy they are. And so here Paul says, look, here's where I'm getting my doctrine of justification by faith. Look at Abraham, a great saint, and look at David, a notorious disgrace. And they're both justified in exactly the same way. Without regard to their works, good or bad, God simply looks at the faith in the heart and declares that one who does not work but believes to be righteous in his sight, just, forgiven, restored, and renewed. That's Paul's doctrine of justification. It's by grace, through faith, alone. Now, we can say, based on these two examples and the details in the text, we can lay out in a more theological form exactly what this doctrine is. We can put the pieces together to unpack how it works, how sola fide works. This is what I'm calling the method of justification, the way it works. And the way justification works has these four stages, and we can summarize them quickly. Four stages of how justification works based on the two examples we've just seen. Number one, all sin is covered and forgiven. That's step one of justification. All sin is covered and forgiven. You see that in verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now, not covered in the sense of hidden, concealed, swept under the rug, a cover-up. Not that kind of covering. How did sins get covered in the old covenant? A sacrifice. The blood of the animal splashed upon the holy altar purifies that altar of the blemishes that came upon it because of the sinner. And the sinner is released and forgiven. His sins are covered by the blood. And here, what has God provided but a sacrifice to cover the sins of his people? As it says earlier in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. That's what covers our sin. The sin is covered by the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Blessed is the one whose sins are covered by the blood and who therefore has all their sins wiped off the ledger. Cleared, clean, cleansed of all sin. That's the first thing that happens to you, Christian, when you believe the gospel and put your faith in Christ. All that crud, all that sin, all that junk, years and years and years of it, it's just gone. Just Washed, wiped away. God cleans it off. Your record in heaven. All sin is covered and all is forgiven. Step two in justification or stage two. Righteousness. 
full and sufficient and perfect righteousness is imputed or credited to your account. Paul says it three different times. Quoting scripture in verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted, credited to him as righteousness. His faith was counted as righteousness. He says it again in verse 5. His faith, the one who believes in him, who justifies, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then again in verse 6, God counts righteousness to the one who believes. Freely, it's a gift. It's a gift of righteousness. So all the sin gets removed, but now you're just sort of a blank slate. No sin, no righteousness, just kind of like in neutral between them. And in an instant, all the righteousness you need gets credited to your account. It's just in your account one day. (laughs) Where did that come from? Do you remember when we were getting all those um, checks and stuff from the government? Like during the isolation stuff? I, I was in North Carolina. I filled out my application wrong. Filled it out wrong. I got zilch for like five months. So I'm just sitting there like, where's all this... Where's all the money? You know, where's the, where's the promise of the money? <laughs> Come on, you know? And, and one day I figured out, I was on there looking on the website like what? And I, I, I clicked something wrong. I didn't, I, there was one thing I missed. And so I went in there and I did the thing and then went on about my business. And the next day there's like $6,000 in my account. It's like, where did this come from? It's just, I was isolated not working. <laughs> I was home eating steak in my floor, watching Netflix for weeks with Sarah, just because we couldn't go anywhere. <laughs> so talk about no work. I wasn't working at all. And all of a sudden, thousands of dollars are just raining down from nowhere into my account. You, Christian, without any work, to the one who does not work, but just simply believes all the righteousness you could ever dream of needing to be right with God just descends like rain from the sky. And just, it's yours. It's just in your account, freely, automatically, right there, simply credited to you. And you didn't do one thing for it. All sin is forgiven and covered Righteousness, sufficient, full, perfect righteousness that you need to stand in a right relationship with God. It's yours. Stage three, faith receives this righteousness apart from works. Faith alone, apart from works, receives this righteousness. Verses five and six. To the one who does not work but instead of working, believes in him who justifies the ungodly, the sinner. His faith is counted as righteousness. It's only faith that receives it. It's without works. It's apart from works. It's just faith. So when you believe by faith and by faith alone in the promise of the gospel in Christ, all sin forgiven, full righteousness imputed. And it's just your faith that receives this double benefit. And then, and only then, 
is the final stage of justification. You get the legal declaration from the judge with the gavel, slamming down the gavel, giving you the verdict, the judgment. Not guilty, just righteous in my eyes. The judge who will judge all people in the last day, already in the middle of time, judges for you. He doesn't wait till the end. He gives you the last judgment verdict now. And he says, you are just in my sight, righteous, right with me, accepted in my sight, reconciled to me, no sin to condemn you, only righteousness to secure you. You are just in my sight. Because the word justification, or the word to justify in Greek, means to make a legal declaration, like in a court. It means to give you a verdict. To give you a verdict of righteous. Paul celebrates this in, later in the letter when he says in chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. He repeats this at the end of the at the end of the chapter, verse thirty three. He says, "Who shall bring any charge? Who can bring charges, legal charges, into the God's courtroom in heaven against you? Who, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. There's no supreme court above Him that can overturn." Your verdict of righteous. Nothing higher that the devil or your own soul, your own conscience or your own flesh or your own doubts or fears could ever appeal to a higher court that could overturn God's declaration. His is the highest court imaginable. Who can bring a charge? God is the one who justified you. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. There's your hope, Christian. There's your only place to stand. There's the solid rock that your faith can stand secure when all around my soul gives way. He is all my hope and stay. Four stages of justification. All sin forgiven. Perfect righteousness imputed, credited to you, out of nowhere, from God. Faith alone receives forgiveness and righteousness. And once you've received those two things, God in the court of heaven declares you are just. Not guilty, not condemned. Righteous, free, forgiven forever. Let's move on now, finally, to the lessons of justification. Here are three lessons. There's probably 300, but let's, let's just do three. Three lessons for how, for how to live your Christian life on the basis of sola fide. If this is the gospel and if this is the truth, how then should we live our Christian lives? Now, I just have three 
brief lessons for us to consider, for you to take home. Lesson number one. You must learn how to live daily as a justified sinner. You must learn how to live daily as a justified sinner. Did you notice in verse 4, I'm sorry, verse 5, that it says, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. The one who justifies the ungodly. Those are the only people that get justified are the ungodly. Remember our two examples, Abraham and David. They are examples of justification. But only the ungodly get justified, which means Abraham and David are two different examples of two different kinds of ungodliness. We can call these Abraham sinners and David sinners. Abraham sinners are tempted to pride and to self-righteousness because of their own goodness. Look at all the good works. Look at all the good intentions. Look at all the good things. Look at my church attendance, Sunday school attendance, tithing record, served on every committee they will let me on, uh, mission trips, and rattle it off. Look at all the good stuff. Look at all the good things to my own credit. An Abraham sinner is tempted to have pride, is tempted to have self-righteousness. The David sinner isn't like that. The David sinner is tempted to despair because of his great and many sins. The Abraham sinner thinks he's too good. The David sinner thinks he's too bad. The Abraham sinner thinks, I'm, I, have, I have a lot of good works. I'm a good person. I live a good life. I try to be a good Christian. I do X, Y, and Z. And that's what they're hoping in. That's the temptation. And then the David sinner says, look at all the mess. Look at all the sin. I, there's, no, there's no hope for me. One is tempted to pride. The other is tempted to despair. Both are ungodly. But in different ways. They're just mirror images of each other. Two sides of the same ungodly coin. Both are ungodly and both are sinners. And so you see, both the unrighteous and the self-righteous must repent and come to Christ by faith alone. And when we understand that we are righteous perfectly in Christ, and yet we are still sinners in ourselves, we will develop the two chief Christian virtues of humility and hope. Humility and hope. We will see that we are great sinners, and so we must remain humble. We're still sinners. We still sin daily in word, thought, deed, motive, you name it. We're still sinful in ourselves. And our righteousness in Christ is purely a gift of grace by faith alone. We have nothing to boast about. And so when we understand those two things, we learn humility and we resist pride and self-righteousness. But then we don't simply despair. Oh, I'm still so sinful. God must be done with me. The gospel must not be true. The promises must not be 
strong enough for me, maybe for that one and that one, but me, I'm gone. I'm a goner. No. When you understand that you are perfectly righteous and secure in Christ and Christ alone, that inspires hope. And so you have to learn the balance of being simultaneously just and a sinner and learn to live in the daily balance of being a justified sinner, still fighting sin, putting sin to death, repenting of sin, trusting Christ every day. And that keeps us humble. But then knowing that Christ does forgive and God's grace is powerful and strong and it's not up to me, it's all of him, not my, not my own works or doings, not my own good intentions or my efforts and performance. And that encourages hope, hope in Christ for a great sinner like me because he's a great savior. And you learn to live in this tightrope balance where humility offsets pride and self-righteousness and where hope offsets despair because of sin. These two virtues of humility and hope, they help us guard our hearts against both pride and despair. And that's where we find assurance. The secret of the Christian life is learning how to balance being simultaneously just and sinner. Living like a justified sinner. Lesson two. Do not base your relationship with God on your works, but on God's. Do not base your relationship with God on your works for Him, but on God's works for you. In verse 4, Paul says, To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Wages are your earnings. Earnings are based on performance. But your relationship with God is only based on grace, not performance, and not your earnings. Your relationship with God is based only, solely, and exclusively on what Christ has earned for you and in your place. A right relationship with God, justification, is a free gift received by faith alone. So do not fall into the temptation of thinking that your goodness and your performance and how spiritual you are and how pious you are and how often you pray and read your Bible and give and serve and go and do and get caught in, the, in the, just the circle, the spinning wheel of your own performance where you just run and run and run, but you never get anywhere do not fall into that temptation of thinking your own treadmill of goodness and works and performance are required for the least drop of grace from God or are required to have his love or his mercy or his tenderness or his patience or his kindness. That's not the basis. We, we get into periods of spiritual drought and depression because we're really sad and bummed out about our own poor performance. And we should be sad and bummed out about our poor performance, but not because we think, oh, there goes my relationship with God. There, there goes my justification. There goes grace. There goes mercy. If I just, you know, prayed every day this morning before I ate breakfast, then God would be pleased, and then I, would have, I wouldn't have experienced this tragedy or this suffering. Like, we get caught in this trap where the devil wants us to stay broken and defeated and depressed. 
where we think, well, I'm just not good enough. I just, you know, my performance was just a little better. Then I'd have more grace and I'd have, that's earnings. That's works. That's a treadmill that you run as hard as you can and work up a sweat, but get nowhere. Do not trust in your good works. Only trust in Christ's good works for you. Third and final lesson. Your good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruit, not the root of justification. Your good works, which are commanded and are required and are not optional, done in obedience to God's commandments, His law, which is still valid, those good works are the fruit, not the root of justification. You see, saving faith, real saving faith, faith that receives forgiveness of sins and the gift of righteousness and the declaration of justice or being justified in God's sight, saving faith is a living faith, not a dead faith. And that's what the letter of James is about when it says we're not justified by faith alone, but by works. You think, oh no, we're not Protestant anymore. No, what, 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 what? James is talking about something else. He's saying a living faith is the only kind of faith that actually justifies before God. And the life of a living faith is a life of obedience because faith without works is dead. Faith that's not connected to a Christian life it's dead faith. It's got no life in it. But a living, active, breathing, moving faith is a faith that works. Faith works. Not to get justified, but because it already is. For you see, faith is the root of justification. And out of that faith, the fruit of goodness and holiness and godliness grows naturally. Good works are the fruit and evidence of a justifying faith. Godliness follows faith like trees follow the seasons. I was walking my dog this morning. There are these leaves all over the ground. There's this cold wind blowing. It's awful. <laughs> it's just awful. I don't like, you know, autumn I mean, it's nice for a minute. October, Reformation Month, and then, you know, when's spring coming? I just, just over it. And I'm way farther north than I will, you know, anyways. Okay? But I was walking around, and I was just thinking, like, what made these, what makes it autumn? Does the leaves falling from the trees make the season change? Like it's just summer, and then the leaves start falling, and the earth's like, oh, must be time to change to summer, to, to, from summer to fall now? And then the leaves make the seasons turn? No. No. The leaves fall because the season changes. The trees follow the seasons by nature. And in the same way, good works follow faith by nature. And as the seasons of faith move and revolve and change, we'll have periods of springtime and summer where everything is vibrant and growing and blooming and then we'll have periods where it's cold and windy and the and the leaves are just brown and crunchy and it's and it feels right it feels bad we'll go through these seasons of faith and your christian life will follow your faith 
But a Christian life will follow faith if the faith's alive, if it's real saving faith in a real Jesus, because our hearts are changed. And that divine gift of faith follows the grace of God. And good works flow out of that faith as fruit, like fruit on the trees. Christian, God justifies the ungodly, but he does not leave you ungodly. God justifies you when you're ungodly and without works and only by faith, but he doesn't leave you in that condition. You don't stay ungodly and without works and just with faith. No, now that you're justified and right with God, that Christian life naturally starts to grow and bloom and go. And now you become more and more godly. And now you add more and more works to your faith. And now you are living the Christian life. Not to get justified, but because you are. Not to get saved, but because you already are. So brothers and sisters, let us treasure sola fide. This doctrine that we're justified by faith alone, this is the heart of the gospel. This is absolutely essential to the one true biblical gospel, the only one there is and the only one that can save. And anything else that leads you to hope in anything but salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone is a false gospel and is to be rejected and fled from. It's poison. Do not believe a false gospel. Because when you believe a false gospel, you start putting faith in something other than the only one who can save. You start looking to self and start looking to performance. And there's no hope down that, no hope down that road. So let us treasure this doctrine. It's essential to the gospel and it's essential to the Christian life as these lessons of justification teach us. So let us thank God for these things. Let us strengthen our faith in Christ. Let us hold fast to the biblical gospel. And let us live as justified sinners in gratitude for God's free and amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for a mighty, perfect gospel. A gospel about a mighty and perfect Jesus who saves completely and who saves to the uttermost. Thank you for the gift that we can be forgiven of our sins and counted righteous in your sight simply by faith, only by believing in what you have done for us. Help us to not fall into the temptations of pride and self-righteousness or of despair on the other side. Help us to learn to live that balance, that razor-sharp balance that we are justified sinners cultivate strong, vibrant, growing faith in our hearts. Give us a life full and flourishing with holiness and godliness and obedience out of deep gratitude, trusting only in Christ to make us right with you, and then asking you for the help of your spirit every day to live more and more fully in this amazing grace and this perfect gospel. Help us to plant our feet firmly on this solid rock of the gospel that we are saved by you alone through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.